Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Anatolian Plateau occupies the area between two zones of the folded mountains, extending east to the point where the two ranges converge. This is a semi-arid highland and uh, varies in elevation from 700 meters to 2,000 meters from west to east. Approximately 23 million years ago, as a result of the collision between the Arabian Plate and the Eurasian Plate, the Anatolian Plateau was formed along those alluvial plains with large rivers is where the great empire of the Hittites formed and flourished. The metallurgical skills of the Hittites were pretty much uh, second to none in that era and that, alongside with the vast um, plains that could be cultivated for wheat and barley, led to an unprecedented for the area growth of the Hittite kingdom. 100 kilometers west of Konya, close to the lake of Bayeshehir, there's a hilly, quiet, arid landscape. At the top of a little river valley that flows in the further progress into the lake, there is the lilac-colored spring of a flatoon pinar, which produces an astonishing quantity of ice-cold clear water. Directly next to the spring, a relief-covered wall of huge boulders was erected more than 3,000 years ago by a civilization that even today is not so well known outside the Middle East and the archaeological uh, circles. This is the Hittite Spring Sanctuary of Eflatun Pinar. This Hittite Spring Sanctuary has carvings and monuments of the Hittite Pantheon Fully excavated now, it reaches up to the impressive height of over 6 meters and was original part of a closed fountain house. This is uh, around 500 kilometers west of the capital city of Hattusa and designates the westernmost expansion point of the Hittite Empire. John Henry Haynes, an American archaeologist from the 19th century, around the year 1884, Travelling through Anatolia, took some of the first modern photographs of uh, the site of Eflatun Pinar. Hello, I'm Tom Dinas, and this is the Delicious Legacy Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. This is going to be an interesting episode, I believe. Uh, a little bit different, perhaps, from uh, other ones. It took me a while trying to uncover 
some elements of this mysterious, mysterious for us, civilization of uh, the Middle East, um, because um, obviously it's very well attested in the historical record with many, many cuneiform tablets and of course lots of archaeological evidence and many archaeologists studying the remains of these ancient cities of the Bronze Age for more than 100 years now. And yet we, at least here in the West, don't know much about uh, the Hittites. So trying to discover much about them it has been um, challenging in a way about their food, of course, about their food and their recipes, because they have lots and lots of uh, tablets that survived uh, in the modern age from uh, palace burials. And um, I thought I would be able to find um, at least um, some tentative evidence of recipes. But since this hasn't come to fruition, I've tried to give an overview of their civilization, their history, and what did they uh, grow as a, an agricultural society, what they had available, what fruits and vegetables and, and foods they had available in the time, and try to give um, a little bit of information about their calendar and their seasons and how they grew stuff and what was the relationship with uh, the drinks and the food of that uh, period and how seasonal it was. So I hope you enjoy this, um, this um, rather different episode and um, as ever, let me know your thoughts on Twitter or email me or anywhere else. Leave some comments on YouTube, on the podcast and so on. In the first half of the second millennium BC, around the year 1650, the Hittite king Labarna moved the capital from Nessa to Hattusha and took the name Hattusli, which means the one, or the man, from Hattusha. After the Kashkians arrived to the kingdom's north, the twice attacked the city, and under the king Tudhaliya I, the Hittites moved the capital north to Sapinua. Under Muwat Ali II, they moved south to Tarnuhasa, but the king assigned his son, the future Hattusli III, as a governor of Hattusa. In the mid-13th century BC, Hittite ruler Mursili III returned the seat to Hattusa, where the capital remained until the end of the Hittite kingdom in the 12th century BC. For 500 years, between 1700 BC and 1200 BC, the Hittites ruled over much of Anatolia, the peninsula that contains most of the terrain of modern Turkey. Famed for the metallurgy and their mastery of chariots, they created one of the first major civilizations of West Asia, centered on the city of Hattusa. At their peak, their powerful empire extended south to modern Syria. There, the Hittites encountered the Egyptians, one of the other prevailing powers of the time. Fighting for control of trade routes and resources, the two forts, famously clashed in the 13th century BC at the Battle of Kadesh, which concluded with the signing of what's widely considered the world's first international peace treaty. The city of Hattusa itself, at its peak, covered about 1.8 square kilometers, or 440 acres, 
and comprised an inner and outer portion, both surrounded by a massive and still visible course of walls, erected during the reign of Sapiluliuma I, in the middle of roughly the years 1344 to 1322 BC. The inner city covered an area of some 0.8 kilometers, 200 acres, and was occupied by a citadel with a large administrative building with large administrative buildings and temples. The royal residence, or Acropolis, was built on a high ridge now known as Buyukale, the Great Fortress. The city displayed over 6 kilometers or 3.7 miles of walls, with inner and outer skins, around 3 meters of thick and 2 meters of space between them, around 3 meters of thickness and 2 meters of space between them, adding 8 meters of total thickness of walls. One of the most important discoveries that came over the 20th century at the site has been the cuneiform royal archives of clay tablets from the Hittite Empire New Kingdom period, known as Bogazgoi Archive, consisting of official correspondence and contracts, as well as legal codes, procedures for cult ceremony, oracular prophecies, and literature of the ancient Near East. One particularly important tablet currently on display at the Istanbul Archaeology Museum, details the terms of a peace settlement that reached a few years after the Battle of Kadesh between the Hittites and the Egyptians under Ramesses II in 1259 or 1258 BCE. So there is a copy of this uh, treaty on display in the United Nations in New York City as an example of the earliest known international peace treaty. Today, all that is still standing in Hattusha are some of the city's temples, royal residences and fortifications, including the ruins of the great temple dedicated to the god Teshub and the goddess Arena. Strewn with the smaller artifacts, these remnants act as a window into the world of the Hittites. In fact, researchers have found around 30,000 cuneiform clay tablets at Hattusa throughout the past century including the proclamation of Anitas that describes the founding of the Hittite civilization and the Treaty of Kadesh, as we said earlier. Together, these texts reveal valuable information about the Hittites' history, politics, religion, and relations with other regional powers. The excavations in Alachahoyuk were first started in 1907 by Ottoman archaeologist Makridi Bey. Theodore Makridi Bey who was born in 1872 and died in 1940, was an Ottoman and Turkish Greek archaeologist who conducted the first excavations of the Hittite capital, Hattusha. He was the second director of the Istanbul Archaeological Museum after Osman Hamdi Bey. In 1935, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, the founder of the Republic of Turkey, restarted it by providing funds for the excavation. Currently, as we speak, the excavations conducted by the Ankara University Alachahoyuk is seen as the significant tumulus of the Hittites, who migrated to Anatolia in around 2000 BCE. Chinaroglu said, Interesting and informative findings have been uncovered during the excavations. Copper chunks found in a mining workshop that date back 3,700 years and bronze birches are among the most interesting ones. The excavation of Alachahoyuk was first introduced to the archaeology world in 1835 by W.C. Hamilton. The Hittite kingdom was centered on the land surrounding Hattusha and Nessa, 
which is nowadays Kultepe, known as the land of the Hatti. After Hattusa was made the capital, the area encompassed by the bend of the Kizilrimak River, which was the Hittite Marasantilla, or the Greek Halis River, was considered the core of the empire, and some Hittite laws make a distinction between this side of the river and that side of the river. To the west and south of the core territory lay the region known as Luia in the earlier Hittite texts. This terminology was replaced by names as Azawa and Kizuwatna with the rise of those kingdoms. Nevertheless, the Hittites continued to refer to the language that originated in these areas as Luian. Prior to the rise of Kizuwatna, the heart of the territory in Cilicia was first referred to by Hittites as the Adania, which, really interestingly, is today's Adana region. I, the Hittite king, want you to send this message via Maradu. The king of Hatti has persuaded me about the matter of Wilusa, concerning which he and I were hostile to one another, and we have made peace. Now, hostility is not appropriate between us. Send that to him. And, concerning the matter of Wilusa, about which we were hostile, because we have made peace, what then? Because I have confessed my offense before my brother, then let it no further to my brother. This is from the Tawalagawa letter, which concerns a matter between a client city-state on the west of uh, the Hittite Empire, what we call now Troy, or as it was known in the ancient Greek world, Ilion. So this land, this Arzawa land, Wilusa, was a matter of contention between the Achaean Greeks and the Hittites. So this land is known principally from the treaty between the ruler Alexandu and the Hittite king Mutawal II. We're talking about 1295 to 1272 BCE. Sparse references in other texts of the 14th and 13th centuries BCE imply that Wilusa was the remotest Arzawa land and lay on the coast. The evidence of its uh, citadel and lower city is sufficient to suggest the seat of a local ruler of the period. And while the textual evidence points to Wilusa as a land, it would be usual for its capital city to have the same name. So Wilusa, the Hittite term, could be the Greek Ilion. A long letter from the Hittite king, probably Hattusli III, to the king of Ahiwawa, mentions that Wilusa was once a bone of contention between the two. That's the text uh, just read you initially. The location of Ahiwawa was been controversial since its earliest recognition in the Hittite texts in around 1920s. The scattered references to it suggest that it lay across the sea and that its interests often conflicted with those of the Hittites. So what is now known of the geography western of Anatolia makes it clear that there could be no room on the mainland for the kingdom of Ahiawa. Furthermore, the references to the political interests of Ahiawa on the west coast mesh well with increasing archaeological evidence for Mycenaean Greeks in the area, so that it is now widely accepted that Ahiawa is indeed the Hittite designation for this culture, so the Achaean Greeks, the Mycenaean Greeks. Very, very interesting mesh here of uh, historical evidence and myth and um, reality. I love it. Regarding the food culture of the Hittites and um, their, uh, the documentation of it, 
it's quite interesting that um, on one hand, there's a lot of information about the food culture at the time on the tablets, on the cuneiform tablets. On the other hand, obviously, as with many, many other ancient and very ancient civilizations, there aren't any recipes. So what we have is a lot of generic information, but obviously no recipes about it. The Hittites left um, a good number of texts detailing the preparation of food, and there are many laws to stipulate how certain foods are to be prepared, cooked and served, especially in the palace and uh, for the gods and so on. The main ingredients of Hittite cuisine were dairy products, meat, grain products of course, mainly grain, and other products such as honey. The Hittites loved bread and had recipes for as many as 180 types of bread in different shapes and with varying ingredients, as we will uh, see in detail later. Wine was consumed by the Hittites on a regular basis and used for religious festivals and rituals. As we said earlier with bread, more than a hundred pastry names were found in Hittite tablets. During the excavations, findings about olive oil, honey, beverages, vegetables were also discovered. Underlying the hygienic measures taken in Hittite kitchens, Accor said if a chef with a large unmanaged bird or long unmanaged hair cooks in the kitchen or an animal wandering into the kitchen, he or she used to receive a death penalty along with their family. The rule was valid for those who cooked without having a bath beforehand. These rules show how the Hittites took sanitary issues very seriously 4,000 years ago. Perhaps a bit too seriously, maybe, but um, yeah, one cannot be careful enough when it comes to hygiene and the health of the king. The Hittites produced their own wine, milk and beer, usually made from mixed grains or whole wheat grains. Wine making was an independent branch of agriculture, which meant that most Hittites drank wine or beer regardless of their social status. Apart from grapes, Wheat and dates also played the role of creation and connective force in Hittite culture. They had about 360 ways of preparing dates and multiple hymns for wheat and apple trees. And here we have kind of um, the first notion, let's say, of uh, structured drinks, like cocktails in particular, with mead and date wines. And the Hittites used the wine at all their holidays and ceremonies. There were even medical rituals which involved giving warm wine to patients. Healers warmed up three ritons, which are conical drinking horns of wine, and offered up one to the goddess of the sun. This was a manifestation of vibrations concentrated in the form of beverage. When a person drank such potion, they established a connection with God, and in this way, they drank with God. But also drinking with God meant drinking with space itself. The Hittite customs of 4,000 years ago can seem a little bit too much uh, new age, to be honest. Of course, the foods available and the way they ate and the program they planned their year was very seasonal and there was many seasonal food activities. They did seem to have uh, four seasons as well as we do, obviously, today. So they had their own kind of uh, spring, summer, autumn and winter which varied in um, length, so it wasn't like three months each or however we want to construct it now. There was a different way of uh, calculating ancient um, seasons. In an incantation for the storm god Kuli Wisner, the following passage seems to list the seasons. 
If the house owner worships the storm god, Kuliwisna, every year, then in whatever season the house owner exerts himself, whether in spring or in summer or autumn or in winter. So the way that is listed, it seems like the proper order and the sequence of seasons in the Hittite calendar, a new year begins with spring. As we said, even if the Hittite year comprised of four seasons, that doesn't mean that it would necessarily have consisted of three-month periods. It's quite possible that one or more might have lasted for as little as two months, while another might have extended to as many as five months. Since we have no Hittite text which informs us, we can only estimate on the basis of the agricultural activities attested for each of the seasons, and from that we can estimate the possible duration of the seasons, with the points of the beginning and the ending. We are helped in one case by a text which seems to provide us with the number of months from the beginning of the year until the beginning of autumn. The harvesting of barley and wheat crops are only said to have taken place in Buruks, which is the summer, which is the season which follows Hameshas. And since the season of cutting barley in Turkey today begins in July, this means that Hameshas probably occupied April, May and June, so about three months. Spring is also the season for the blooming of the bulbous plants, like onions, turnips and beets. So in this um, type of plants, we have harvests as the season of spring and in honor of uh, deities and uh, festivals that last for 38 days. One of them possibly, one of these plants that they were celebrated was uh, a spring flowering lily or a crocus plant, something like a saffron type of thing. And during the season of Hameshas, the farmers brought to the local temples their offerings of uh, huelpi, which translates as first fruits, primarily like freshly picked fruits or newborn animals. I'll be back after this short break. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hamesos was also a season of rains. There are two principal rainy seasons in Turkey today, and at lower attitudes, like either in the Mediterranean, South Mediterranean, or in the Izmir, or in the Black Sea, rain is heaviest from November to January. So at the higher altitudes of Ankara and Sivas Erzurum, it's heaviest in May. The degree that um, the precipitation pattern was similar in, in the second millennium BC to today might be a little bit um, different, but it points to the heaviest rainy season in the spring. Thus, one must expect that the rain festivals were celebrated in the spring. There are clear evidence that the Hittites employed irrigation for groves of fruit trees. It is possible, but not certain, that grain fields were also irrigated. As we said, Burux was the summer, and it appears that the season of the summer lasted for four months, which corresponds to our months of July, August, September and October. The first of these, which is the fourth Hittite month, was spent in cutting barley. In documents from the Assyrian trading colonies, the name for this time period was Negalim, which means taking the sickle in hand, and it corresponds approximately to the Turkish season named Orak Zaman. During this month, the men went forth from the gates of their cities to the fields, and with their sickles reaped the standing grain. Reaping was characteristically the work of men, while milling was the work of women. Women hired themselves out in the harvest season, and we get this from a Hittite law called 158. But while the term of the month's hire was three months, that of a woman was two. The barley wage for a man was 10 parishu, which equates to 1,100 liters per month. And that was roughly double that of the woman, which was six parishu, or 660 liters per month. This averages out to a little more than a bushel of barley per day for the man. The woman's activities probably were confined to the milling of the threshed grain. Hattusli I boasted that he freed the citizens of Hanhum from compulsory fieldwork. I, the great king, Tabarnus, took the hands of their slave girls from the millstone. I took the hands of their slave men from the sickle. It was the duty of the Urias Ishas to distribute seed to the semi-freed farmers from the stores of the crown. Then in the harvest season, he was to see that the field was reaped and the grain brought into the royal barns. According to the laws, if one man accidentally set fire to another man's grain field, the former took over the burnt field and gave a good field with standing grain to the latter, who reaped it. If ever dispute arose as to which of the two claimants had the right to reap a given field, it was determined which of the two had shown the field first. He who has thus indicated could reap it, while he, his opponent was punished. Some of the barley was set aside for beer production. It was allowed to soak in water for a time until it began to sprout whereupon it was withdrawn from the water and exposed to the sun until it was dry and had lost its power to germinate that served as a seed. This barley had become malt and was a basic ingredient for the production of uh, ancient beer. In Mesopotamia and Palestine, the summer was a time for the harvesting of the summer fruits, dates, olives and figs. Although many different kinds of fruits and nuts are mentioned in the Hittite texts, not much is said about their cultivation, and it is likely in some cases 
particularly with the dates, that the fruit were important. Among the fruit attested, we have the grape, the apricot, the apple, the fig, the medlar, the date, the pomegranate, the olive. Among the nuts, we may include something called ziti and samamma. Other phonetically spelled products may be either fruits or nuts. Haniga, lahumi, mariga, paisina, and so on. The generic terms in Hittite for fruit or product could be describing all this different stuff and we kind of have an idea what this could be, but not specific uh, names. Following um, months, the months of what we call now September and October, roughly, obviously, were spent harvesting the grapes. The designation of the season in the documents of the Cappadocian uh, trading colonies was uh, the harvesting of grapes. In Hittite texts, we know that there's a festival of grape harvesting taking place. It is highly likely that viticulture was already highly developed during the old kingdom of Hittite empire. The prosperity of the land under the king reflected his merit in the eyes of the storm god, the proprietor of the land. In texts whose composition dates from the old kingdom, this prosperity was measured by the produce of the grain fields, the vineyards and the livestock. In the so-called Palace Chronicle, composed in the old Hittite and reflecting in its narrative the customs of the court during the reigns of Hattusli and Murmid, wine is mentioned several times as being under the charge of royal officials who are charged with the distribution of good wine. The advanced state of viticulture during the Old Kingdom is also reflected in the laws. In Law 1-3, the price of grapes is given as measured by the Parisu. Alongside emmer, these prices of grapes were given alongside emmer and barley prices. In law 113, provisions are made for the case where one wine grower damages another man's vine. The offender must take the damaged vine for himself and allow the plaintiff to harvest grapes from a good vine of his own at harvest time. In law 101, a case of theft of a vine is described. In the winter, let him, the king's deputy, Keep his eyes on the king's cattle. Concern yourself with its duties, whether of winter or of summer. Let the places of food be kept in repair. Let ice be procured. Let a nice house be built. From this passage and the lines which immediately preceded, it can be seen that the primary duties of winter were the administrating of the food supplies, which were rationed out to the livestock and to the royal pensioners, the procuring and storing of ice, and the maintenance of buildings and equipment. The Hittites uh, loved their bread, probably more of an, out of necessity rather than anything else. But um, baking and making um, different types of breads and cakes and um, other baked goods from uh, wheat and barley was a, a very popular thing back then. And hence we have many, 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 many tablets, cuneiform tablets, and detailing these different. Um, these different baked goods. Bread made with sourdough is found in texts or there are, you know, variations of like of like fermented butter or leavened bread and other and similar terms that they gives us they give us this kind of feeling. This kind of essence that they made breads with sourdough or sour or bitter taste. There's a cake or a bread which the essential ingredient was mutton fat. It was called something like um Translating, of course, mutton fat cake. In the list of foodstuff, which was found, it says five honey loaves, 
each of which is made like a tooth. So undoubtedly the specific shape imitated that, that was the so-called canine or cuspid tooth with its characteristic pointed extremity. This same shape is envisaged in the use of the word tooth to describe the clove of garlic in Hittite Law 101. There are also texts mentioning bitter bread, old bread, honey cake, cucumber bread, barley bread, without being clear of what uh, each one of these consisted of, but nevertheless were differently named breads. In the ritual of Madunani against epidemic in the army, the following passage occurs. But they do it as follows, two puppies, one piglet, twelve loaves of bread, each weighing a tarnas, fourteen balls of dough, two upnu of kaznahwarif, six goblets, one set of vessels, one daghabhab of wine, all this I take. Lentils and chickpeas were consumed in the ancient Hittite empire too. In one of the festivals, hot food is brought from the palace for the king to eat. This repast consisted of the following. Two parisu of papasu, two parisu of flour, one sea of croats, one upnu of chickpeas, three jugs of ordinary wine, one cater of sour wine. There are several times that uh, a chickpea soup or a stew is mentioned that was eaten with bread. Several of the principal ingredients to these soups were herbs, another preparation blended with fruits, another with honey, a passage from a ritual list nine dishes. We have soups and stews, one of the consistency for sipping, one, one meat stew, a sweet cake, honeyed meal, cream, and a pitcher of beer. From other texts we have information about they cut up a goat and the raw meat, the head, the feet, the breast, and the shoulder, they were roasted over the pit. But the intestines and the heart they roast in fire. I pour out while he drink. I take one small jug of bitter veg and put it before the deity. There was some evidence from the text that cumin was sprinkled on dough and eaten with bread. In the case of coriander, however, we have only the three lists in which it is included with seeds and vegetables, and the broken passage above, which seems to construe with the verb to eat up. It would appear that a meal is being prepared and that the cucumbers are to be eaten along with cooked partridge. Fruits were eaten both fresh and sun-dried. Figs were very important as well in the ancient Hittite. The fruit was eaten both fresh and sun-dried. Two features of the fig impressed the Hittites sufficiently. One that it was sweet and the other that it contained a thousand seeds. It appears in passages where all the fruits are enumerated, as well in smaller groups of fruits where it is associated either with raisins or with raisins and olives. In addition, figs were used to make a kind of bread. Uh, a sort of cake was also made by mashing up inferior figs and served in parts of the Greek archipelago as a substitute for bread nowadays. I wonder if this might, if this might not be a similar commodity. From the domesticated animals like sheep and goats and cows and pigs, the Hittites derived many of their foodstuffs. It was the dairy products that these animals contributed regularly. Milk, sweet milk, clubber and cheeses of various types served as a major source of protein and fat. On rare occasions an animal would be slaughtered and the meat would be eaten. This meat is called something like ouzu. We also get terms for special kinds of cheese, like crust cheese, whipped cream, yogurt perhaps, round cheese, cheese with honey, 
There's this, this uh, passage. When the eighth day dawned, one large cheese loaf and loaves of bread made of three parts of flour broken up to for the gods of the fathers, and those which are stored at the altar they also break up into fragments. Then into the presence of all the gods, wherever they may be, they send one fragment of cheese and one fragment of bread and they place them before the gods. In the early periods of Mesopotamian history, there were temple bakeries. In these bakeries, the bakers were under the supervision of a head baker. The same office of head baker is attested in the Hittite texts that um, archaeologists have discovered over the years. Thus, in both Mesopotamia and Hatti, the bread makers were a part of the great organizations, the palace and the temple. There is no evidence to suggest that there existed any retail trade in pastries, so that the baker or bread maker could be in private business outside of a palace or a temple. The private citizens' needs for um, these bread products were met in their own home by the production of the wife or other domestics. The palace of Hattusa maintained a bakery for which we possess the most stringent purity requirements regarding the preparation of the king's food and drink. From a certain household devoted to a certain chthonic goddess, a dedicated baker is available to perform duties for the goddess. Bakers are listed also among palace personnel and among the temple officials. Just as in the correspondence from the Mari archives, if the services of craftsmen were required in any given town where there was a shortage, the king ordered craftsmen from another town or from the palace to be transferred there. So also in Hati, the same was probably true. There is certain evidence um, also of uh, bakers who were attached to temples of the gods. Uh, they were carried off captive along with priests and other skilled personnel by invading Kaskean hordes in the era of Arnuwanda. These Kaskians were non-Indo-European tribal people who lived in the mountainous East Pontic Anatolia and Black Sea, sometime between the reigns of Arnuwanda and Supiluliuma I, so about 1330 BC. Letters found in Masat Hoyuk note that locusts ate the Kaskas grain. The hungry Kaska were able to join others to the east as well as other enemies of the Hittites, and burned Hattusa, the Hittite capital, to the ground. Anyway, moving to the activities of bread makers, again as been described in the Palace Chronicle. Because the purity of the king's person needed to be maintained, tight supervision was exercised over every agency which supplied his needs. This included the kitchen personnel, who provided him with his food, the shoemakers who made his footwear, the leather workers who constructed the royal chariot and water carriers who carried the royal water bags. In a tablet called KUB 13, 4.33, the fullest picture of these purity measures emerges. There, we learn that the bakers who prepared the daily loaves to be offered to the deity had to be bathed. They must also be shorn of all body hair so that no hair would fall into the butter and contaminate and so that no lice could be carried on their persons. Their fingernails were paired so that no dirt lodged under them might contaminate the dough as they worked on it, and they were required to wear clean clothes as well. The measures extended also to the kitchen in which the bakers worked. It must uh, be thoroughly swept and sprinkled daily before the bread-making activity could begin. No animal was allowed to come near. The implements of the kitchen, which had been defiled by contact with animals, had to be discarded. Kitchen personnel were required to bathe daily, and if we understand the meaning of the translated text uh, correctly, 
especially they needed to bathe anytime they engaged in sexual intercourse. Under no circumstances, they were permitted to resume their duties after they had slept with a woman unless they had bathed afterward. The above regulations pertain in the first instance to temple bakers and cooks, but similar measures must surely have applied to the palace uh, kitchen as well. There is a fairy tale which has been translated into Hittite from a Hurrian source which describes an interesting custom which relates to giving of bread and beer. Perhaps we can translate it in our modern day as uh, food and drink in general, by the townsfolk to the parents of a newborn. The practical reason behind this custom was that the wife would be unable to devote herself fully to the preparation of food for her family until she had recovered from her delivery of the child. In this uh, fairy tale, it is never stated that this custom was also observed in the land of Hatti, so that we will draw no conclusion therefrom about the Hittite society. I mention it here as it's one of the many customs attested uh, in Hittite texts which involve uh, uh, food, drink and bread. Now, I haven't given any recipes or any particular methods of cooking or any specific methods of cooking from uh, the Hittite kingdom and their period. There is a sort of Hittite hotpot, though, which basically consists of fava beans, chickpeas, lentils, pearled wheat and barley, and coriander seeds, flavoured with some butter and vegetables. So essentially, this is pretty um, simple. You soak uh, the beans overnight, you toast in the butter, the beans and the coriander seeds, you add the stock and you let it sit for an hour. Add some herbs, onion and garlic, and you eat with some bread. A simple, a plain affair of sorts, but uh, filling and uh, nutritious. Thanks for listening. I've been Thomas Dinas, and this was the Delicious Legacy Podcast. You can get the episodes on um, Acast, of course, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, so subscribe and uh, follow the podcast. Uh, so you know whenever I release one and of course uh, leave a review and a rating so it can be seen by other people too and spread the word out there in the social media and in the digital world. And remember, if you want the episodes early and ad-free, subscribe to my Patreon page where you get these, but also tons of um, recipes and information about ancient uh, foods and of course, some extra videos. Thanks and see you soon.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.